0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Amira. An inmate at the California state prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San death row and without a gang, without a group of people around me. It was just me.
1: Soon after you went into to be on death row, Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston.
0: And I'm William Naguero.
1: Now, Bill, you're currently going down a a bit of a rabbit hole on a certain crime that occurred uh, over 100 years ago in Iowa, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I thought it would be interesting to... Really, take the audience into a century old murder or, or, or murders that took place, you know, and kind of pinpointing who the unknown serial killer was, because he's obviously dead by now, unless he's a vampire. Um, this particular murder scene is going to give the audience a real look at how to kind of decipher if a murderer did it, a serial killer did it who he was, what are the other possible or plausible uh, motives uh, or, or assailants. So this is an interesting case. I've been looking at it for some time, for months now, and I brought it to your attention. You thought it was a good idea to really take a look at it because there's so many victims. You know, The first murder, which is the Velisca axe murders, um, eight people died in one night in this particular house. So I really thought that the audience would really get a kick off actually the interest in a century old murder
1: that today remains unsolved. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't hear about murders that old in the news very often because, you know, people move on, I guess, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. Um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, have you read In Cold Blood?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good book. The writer seemed annoying as hell, but it was, uh, it was really interesting. It, it kind of reminds me of that. Inf- that was in Kansas, I believe. Anyway, um, so w- why is this on your radar exactly?
0: First of all, the amount of people that died in one night, we all look at Jack the Ripper as being like, when you think of serial killer, at least in most people's circles, you think of Jack the Ripper. But he didn't kill that many people compared to other serial killers that were killing at the time. Yes, he was very gruesome, and it just picked up, the media picked up on him. This case did not get picked up. But six children died the first night and two adults. Um, The the killer used an axe to kill. And this case interests me because I saw several other instances where extremely similar circumstances happened which lead me to believe that the Velisca axe murders were done by a serial killer. And This is one of the last things he did, and it picked up a little bit more attention than the other killings prior to this. But this particular serial killer killed for about a decade, and he did so in extremely similar fashion that a lot of people have not picked up on this. Honestly, it's kind of shocking to me, but we wanted to cover the Velisca axe murders first and then kind of lead you down that rabbit hole So you can see where the murders actually started and actually why they stopped and if they started again in another country. Because again, when you have M.O.s and signatures that are extremely identical to each other, and this is a time when we didn't have social media. We didn't have television where people could just look up or see how a killer killed. So that another guy did it again and again and again leads me to believe it's one perpetrator. And that's what really interests me about this case.
1: Yeah, so we'll get into that, but just based on what you just said, having talked to you as as an expert on serial killers, a lot of them do kill children. Um, and I think we, we're probably in agreement that it's really messed up to be killing adults for no reason, but I I don't understand it, but I can kind of understand it. Like, cause you know, I've met adults from like, oh, I fucking kill that guy, but I don't, I don't mean that. Like, you know, I just flippantly would say something like that, but uh, only a serial killer is going to kill six children. Right. There's just no reason to do that. Right.
0: Yeah, well, in my opinion, there's no reason to touch children, period. But this particular guy, there is a motive. And I, I, have, I have found a thread in all of these murders that seems to be the same. And, you know, it's 100 years from now. So, of course, forensics, the collection of, uh, you know, DNA, blood splatter, you know, blood analysis, fingerprints, is nonexistence. So we're really going by what newspaper and police reports say and i see a very distinct pattern here specifically with the motive and his signature and and we've talked about this many times and you know i describe the signature as being something very unique to a killer and although he does it over and over and over it's not necessary to a crime and, and, and i've explained that you and i've described and shown you a variation of different signatures with professional baseball players that can be looked upon as a signature it's very similar to that of a serial killer not that baseball players are, are killers but so you watch these guys come to the plate and they touch their hat twice you know they, they lift their cup they Unhook their gloves, they hook them back up, they touch the back of the bat, and then they lift up their right foot and they put it down, and now they swing the bats. And they do it every single time they pitch the a volto. That is a signature. It doesn't help the guy hit the ball over the fence or even make connection with the ball, but he believes it helps him. It's a ritual. That's what serial killers, that's what a signature to a serial killer is it's a ritual. So I have found that ritual in more than 59 murders at this time, within a 10 year period. And there is extremely uh, detailed uh, signatures in about another 50 murders at that time that can be connected to one serial killer. And that makes this guy to date the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. You know, we have that guy, Little, who's a modern-day killer that was put in prison. I believe he died. And he had 60 confirmed murders. He actually bragged about killing about 100 and some people, which often is the case with serial killers. This particular guy, he's an axe murderer. I can attribute 59 for sure to him, but I can also tie another approximately 50 murders to him. And that makes him, well, basically the most prolific serial killer in US history, but also widely unknown one. No one knows about this guy. We're keeping his name a little bit secret because we want to talk about the Villisca murders. And then I'm going to give you examples of other murders that happened. And you guys can judge
1: for yourself if I'm on the right track here or not. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good analogy. I haven't been to a baseball game or watched one on TV since they instituted the pitch clock, which seemed to be much needed, in my opinion. So I think they may be doing a little bit less of the scratching their balls and stuff and and uh, unhooking the gloves and stuff because th- that really annoyed me personally. And I, I believe it annoyed everyone that watched Baseball, um, so, all right, so let's before we get into the Valeska murders, I just want to ask you because you told me this at some point and I seem to have forgotten the specifics, but you have a theory on how many serial killers are operating in this country on a daily basis. Um, can you explain that a little bit? And do you think it was about the same? Uh, during this time period?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've talked about this before, and I've actually detailed it in my book that's coming out in this uh, 2024, early 2024, and it's called The Lens of a Monster. And what I detail is that approximately 40 to 50, even as many as 60 serial killers are working in the United States at one time. And... This has been a number that has existed for a very long time. A hundred years ago, I believe the numbers are about the same. There's really no change. We know more about the serial killers now because of modern media, uh, modern techniques of forensic evidence collecting, and we we tie them to murders. At this time, you didn't have that mass media. You didn't have police work or police um, techniques were these murders were connected. You know, we had trouble in the 1970s and 80s that police didn't share information. Now, you can imagine back 100 years ago where a local sheriff who, for whatever reason, didn't think something was important and he threw it away. But the numbers that I talk about are based on that serial killers are born this way. They're not made. A lot of speculation have all these psychiatrists and psychologists who need a job and need to take credit for something, are always talking about child abuse, that these serial killers are made because of circumstances from their environment and because of how they were abused. I completely disagree. Uh, Yes, the abuse, the environment can tweak their issue, like say their mother wore red pumps and she beat this kid or whatever, and now he kills women who have Red pumps on or whatever well that's the symptom and i get that but they were already going to kill no matter what now the hard evidence is that millions of kids are abused every year in the united states we know it we see it on television we don't have millions of serial killers we have 40 to 50 or maybe as many as 60 per year these kids are born The same amount of kids are also born every year, who are what you would call uh, prodigies, extremely gifted children that can sit down at the age of three and play a piano, or age two, they can do trigonometry and calculus. Around 40 to 60 of these are born per year in the world. And this is the same basis that I'm using as a model for serial killers. They're born this way. These kids were not taught this way. Of course, it's the extreme. The other one is a child prodigy, piano, mathematics, painting, whatever you want to call it. And the evidence seems to back up what I say. And there's also the issue that I am the only person that has spent four decades on death row with serial killers. and I use that time to study them, interview them, interrogate them, and usually make them believe that I was like-minded, so they share information. with me. All that put together has led me to believe, and my thesis is... The serial killers are born, not made. Let me call you back. Hey, Matt.
1: Yeah, speaking of the born and not made thing, which I agree with you on, especially the more that, that you kind of hash it out, But and we're going to get to the Valeska murders, but I, I've never asked you about this. So I was watching a YouTube video about some child that was murdered and it's never been solved. And they said, well, it could be a copycat killing. And I'm like, and we've all heard that term, and I never thought about it. But I'm like, wait, 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 You're telling me that some guy just was watching the news and was like, oh, that'd be a good idea. Like, it's actually a pretty ridiculous concept, isn't it? Uh,
0: not so much, actually. And, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so, a copycat killers, yeah, there's been movies made about these guys. And- However, you have to understand serial killers and budding serial killers who are finally understanding who they are. They usually do their own thing. They have their own little pick. They do what they do because there's an impulse they can't control. Serial killers as opposed to guys who rob a bank and kill someone. They're both murderers. They're both killers. But a serial killer has an impulse to kill. He has to kill the bank robber happened to kill because someone saw him tried to grab a gun they didn't do what he said so it's a little bit different copycat killers are usually people who or serial killers who haven't really developed their own way of killing or they, they get a kick out of you know throwing police off and the concept is that they hear a few things about a killer and they do something very similar usually law enforcement know when it's a copycat because they always keep particular details about the crime to themselves. So if someone does confess so they keep some of that evidence to themselves. So if someone does confess to them and they give up those details that they didn't share before with the public, then they got a pretty good idea that this person had something to do with it. So usually copycat killers, although to the normal observant would think, Oh wow that's the same guy, usually law enforcement that's directly involved with the crime scene know whether it's the real guy doing it or some guy just faking and that's how they call them copycats. They don't really have all the details, but they do similar things. It's not that far-fetched, it does happen. It's not as, um, you know, as, as common as you would think.
1: So, well, my point though was just, and correct me if I'm wrong, that person was gonna kill someone anyway, right? It's not like they were um, duped by the media or something or inspired or something.
0: Yeah, for the most part, they admire the killer. They think it's kind of cute. They have their own twisted way of thinking and they decide to copy that killer. Sometimes serial killers do things, but there's no mold. Every serial killer isn't the same. Everyone is inspired by different things. Copycat killers do exist. Um, law enforcement knows it but this guy was going to kill anyways you're right um, there are killers I know on death row who uh, at the time of their killings for example there was the dating game killer Rodney Alcala there was Randy Kraft the scorecard killer all of these killers and there's also William Bonney were all killing at the same time Randy Kraft and William Bonney both killed men or young boys because they're both gay and sometimes one of their times was attributed to the other one. In conversation with William Bonney, he actually told me that he knew of another killer that was doing similar things. He didn't know the serial killer personally, but he got a kick sometimes of crossing over, doing little things that would make cops believe that, you know, it might be the other guy. And in certain cases, there's been killers who have been attributed to other killers, and they actually get a kick out of that.
1: Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Kind of like a, yeah, like an ego thing or whatever. Yeah, And then on the other hand, some get very insulted when one of their crimes
0: is attributed to another killer and that forces them to kind of contact the police department and say, no, 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 this belongs to me. You know, BTK did something similar to that. So, look, every serial killer is different. Don't let these so-called experts that get on these podcasts and get on these on YouTube and start talking about, well, I've read four or five hundred books, several hundred books on serial killers. That makes me an expert. Bullshit. Okay? Look, if I read a book or a few books on how to fly a freaking plane, are you going to allow me to fly a plane? Or if I read a book on how to do brain surgery, are you going to allow me to freaking operate on you? No. So these true crime supposed specialists that you hear talk about that they have read hundreds of books on the subject, well, ladies and gentlemen, here's the facts. Those clowns are just regurgitating all the mistakes people are making. And I say this with a voice of authority because I've actually talked with serial killers, not in an interview room over a doughnut in a, in a hot dog, where the serial killer had all the answers to every question. He knew that the cops had to come to him. Or, and Kimber who loves us to talk, I talked to these guys over decades and interviewed them about everything that they did because they thought I was like-minded. They thought I was also a serial predator. How did they think that? And I told them I was. And I gave them enough information to make them believe that. And then I started interviewing them. And this doesn't happen over six months or eight months or a year. It happened over four decades that's where I get my position of how to speak from a position of authority and I kind of shrug and think ridiculous when I hear some of these other experts talking about this and they have no idea and no clue. Just because you're a judge and you sentence a bunch of people at a time does not give you the authority to talk about serial predators
1: with any kind of you know authoritative voice or expertise. Yeah, I was trying to learn how to sail, and I read three very detailed sort of encyclopedic books about, encyclopedic, I guess it's the word, books about sailing, and it had no effect whatsoever. And I know how to comprehend things, but it just wasn't useful whatsoever when it came time to actually doing it. Like, it served no purpose at all. Well,
0: that's a little bit different because sailing is a fact-based subject. And hundreds and thousands of you know people have done over the last five centuries, so you can pretty get a good, a good idea on what to do. So it's totally different. You know, you you're getting information from investigators and cops who already seen the case and they're giving the guy information. So he's yeah, I killed that person, but he's not gonna give you the internal details of his impulse. He's just not gonna share that. Um for his own reasons. He's embarrassed. Uh, It's too personal. Remember, the serial killers, their crimes are almost their children, of their minds. It's very personal. It's a monumental moment in their life, and they're not going to share it with a cop. They're not going to share it with a person over a hamburger. They have to know the person. They have to think that they're like-minded, that they're also maybe serial killers. As I mentioned, I've witnessed and been around I see force, you know, these serial killers are playing pinnacle at a table. And they're talking about their crimes amongst themselves. This doesn't happen to cops. Cops never get that kind of action. I do because I was on death row with them.
1: I know. I was watching again recently the Edmund Kemper interviews, and it's like this guy is straight up playing these dudes. Like he's he's getting off on it. He's enjoying just Messing with them and it's like, dude, I don't have a degree. I'm not an academic in this field, but I can see it How is it that you guys are not seeing this? It's it's ridiculous
0: Well, Ed Kemper remember that serial killers can sexualize control Remember what Ed Kemper did? He chopped off his mother's head and had sex with her mouth Okay, when they we should This guy's a very twisted guy. He's also very intelligent. Well, he has about 145 IQ, which is intelligent. He's not a genius level guy. Most people who have a master's degree in college have about 140 to 145 IQ. So this guy is definitely playing them because he knows one important thing: the more he tells them, the more shit he comes up with, the more they're going to come talk to him, and he. Does is constantly. It's what gets him off.
1: But how do so these guys? Be, how do these guys I, not know that? Are they like the only person that can't see it? The guys that are supposedly these experts, who I'm sure, fancy themselves as being very perceptive and intelligent. And it's like, dude, are you the only guys that don't understand what's going on here? It's it's bizarre.
0: Well, remember that with M. Kemper, he was the co-ed killer, by the way killed all these. Anyways, I digress. Um, he was a serial killer that did it in the late, late 60s, early 70s. This is a time that the FBI was scoffing at John Douglas and his team of basically profilers or the FBI's specialized units. And they began to really write the book on the serial predators. So he came along a time where people didn't know anything about them and he was willing to talk. So everything he said was written down as gospel. And you know, if you read the book Mindhunter by John Douglas, it's a great book, John Douglas, you know, pioneer in the field of serial killers, but he didn't know what the hell he was doing when he first started. Sure, as time came along, he began to understand these people more, but again, he's an investigator. Serial killers don't just devolves things to cops because they're on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, It doesn't mean that John Douglas in any way made anything out, he didn't. He was legitimately trying, and if it were not for him, we probably wouldn't know what we know today about serial killers, so he is a pioneer. He's a giant in the field. Unfortunately, some of the information, a lot of the information that was written down as gospel was just garbage that these serial killers were giving these guys. Because it gave them notoriety It got them into the spotlights And as we know, serial killers love the spotlights
1: Yeah, I read that book And I was honestly really excited to read it And I I was curious about his tactics for profiling And and kind of how he arrived at his, his predictions None of that was explained in the book whatsoever It gave me the impression he was kind of just throwing shit at the wall um and i think he actually made a name for himself because he predicted there there was a certain uh killer they were looking for and he predicted that the guy had a stutter and it turned out that he did stutter yeah that was great right i mean how did he kind of just get lucky on that one (laughs) like how would you know that how are you gonna look at a crime scene and be like yeah i think the dude has a stutter
0: yeah well he also the, the killer he's talking about was David Carpenter and he's the trailside killer and I look again I don't want to see her in my soapbox but I know David Carpenter I've known David Carpenter for the better part of 37 years I was in the same yard with him I took care of him I was his care provider he's the trailside killer and, and yes David Carpenter has a stutter um, that he was able to go to the places and, and say he ambushed look it's easy to write a book 30 years later or 40 years later and throw that in there we don't have any direct evidence that he told anybody in 1978 he told people
1: this guy has a stutter <laughs> that's good i mean I, I actually enjoyed that i had a good chuckle from that yeah
0: but david carpenter does have a stutter um the DA in his case said that he was faking. I know it to be, there are facts about David Carpenter that only I know. And as I said, I, they will be divulged in the months and years to come in the books I write about these guys because I've been around them. But David Carpenter, he doesn't stutter when he starts talking about particular things, which is very interesting. And he does stutter. He, the word with an S, he has a lot of trouble He always tells me, do not <laughs> help me. You know, he does stutter. Let me call you back. <laughs> Thank you for using Global Tail Link.
1: Yes. I, I see what you're saying. Maybe a little embellishment or revisionist history on John Douglas's part on that one.
0: Maybe he guessed it. I don't know. Maybe he's got some secret uh, crystal ball that I don't know about, but um, I found that interesting. Like the, the book's a great book. Um, it was very interesting for me to read it to kind of see his analogy, his perspective. As I said, he's a giant in the, in the profiling world, the, the FBI's uh, uh, specialized units. Um, and he's the, basically the founder of it. So, I found his perspective interesting. I, I never really make fun of people that are the, at the forefront of this. I mean, they're actually an experienced investigator. Um, I do make fun of people who claim they've read h- several books and they've never worked a crime scene or been around killers in any way, shape, or form. I do have an issue with them. But John Douglas, obviously, um, very intelligent man, and I, I found his book to be very interesting. I have recommended it. Um, but... Back to the Villisca murders, which I think is where um, we're at. Um, I think this is a very interesting case, and we're going to do it over several episodes, but I think the, the audience is going to find this case and the trail of other murders that are, at the end of the day, are, are going you're going to have the conclusion that this was a serial killer and that he was guilty of over 59 murders.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, last thing I'm going to say about Douglas, he seems like a good guy. I'm not trying to disparage him or anything. I just could have used a little more hard data in the book. So if you predict the guy as a stutter, what else did... Like, what'd you get wrong? You, like, you're not a psychic. All right. Anyway, let's talk about the Villisca, uh murders. And, and um, I guess this crime... You know, putting myself back in this time period, um, there wasn't as much coverage of this kind of thing, but I guess the crime was so horrific that it actually was like a national news story, right?
0: Yeah, it did get a lot of attention. Um, it's, it remains unsolved till today. Um, so let's talk about the murders. It's, it, they're called the Velisca, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Axe Murders and the eight people lost their lives, six children, two adults. Uh, the weapon that was used was an axe. Just imagine the, the type of trauma that this inflicted. It happened on the ninth, early morning of June the 10th, 1912, or, of course, it happened, you know, the night of June 9th, 1912. We, we don't know because, remember, forensics uh, pathologists coroners could not really pinpoint the time of death like they can today um, so what happened that night so here it is the Moore family which consists of a father named Josia I hope I pronounced that correctly and his wife Sarah and their four kids uh, Herman Mary Catherine Arthur Boyd and Paul were all in this home. They're pretty well-known in this community. Um, the night of June the 9th, Mary Catherine, which is one of the daughters, she invited her friend, Ina and Nina, uh, both sisters, to spend the night at their residence. And that night they had gone to a church they went to a children's program which the mother sarah had coordinated and, you know they left around 9 45 10 o'clock they arrived at the house with the two um children as i mentioned nina and uh enna i believe it's edna how you pronounce her name uh their last name is Stillinger. so they go to sleep. It's a normal night. These are good people. They're not involved in drugs, you know, prostitution, none of those things. The following morning, which is June the 10th, a neighbor by the name of Mary Peckham goes over to the Moore's home, which is Sarah and Josiah's home. And she notices that nothing's being done. Back in this period people did chores. They got up, they milked the cows, they took out the chickens but Miss Peckman notices that nothing like this is happening and this is a normal ritual of this house. She comes to the front door, she knocks nobody answers. She tries to open the door but all the doors are locked. So she walks over and allows the chickens out from the Moore's home which is what they normally do. And then she calls Rossmore, which is Josiah's brother, and he comes over. He knocks on the door. There's no answer. He shouts out nothing. They become concerned. So he has a copy of the front door, and he unlocks the door and lets himself in. While Mary Peckham is outside the porch waiting to go in, Ross goes into the house, opens the guest bedroom, and there he finds Lina on the bed uh, and her sister Edna, and they're both dead. Immediately, he tells Mary Beckham to call the peace officer, he's the sheriff type of guy, his name is Henry Hank Horton. and you know, he comes over. They begin to search the house, and they realize that the entire family has been bludgeons to death. And the murder weapon is this axe act that actually belongs to Josiah. I, 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 is that is it incorrect? Is it? It's J O S I A H. So it's Josiah or Josiah? I've never heard that name before, but yeah. It's his axe, and it's in the guest room where the two young girls, Nina and Edna are, actually found dead. So he leaves the axe there. The whole house is a horror scene. And here's where you start seeing some real problems with what's going on. They just weren't hacked to death. They're they're hit with the blunt part of the axe. All the windows have been covered with sheets and towels to prevent someone from looking in. Or maybe the killer has an impulse, a pick. He's doing this as part of his signature, which is he's leaving his signature on the crime uh, scene. So they doctors are brought in. And they conclude the murders are done between midnight and about 5 a.m. They don't know for sure, but it would depend on the temperature of the rooms, depends on the weather. All these things have a significant, uh, influence on a crime scene. And, and Matt, you know this. We see it all the time that, you know, if a person's outside and you have to put different type of, uh, measuring sticks, to measure what time of death or what time death occurred. So these people, we don't know exactly. It's in June. It's warm outside. We've got to be in consideration. It's a different part of the country. What was the weather like then? So all of these things must be taken into account with modern technology to actually... So midnight to 5 a.m., well, let's leave it there. Okay? So there are Supposedly, cigarette butts left near the attic where they believe that the killer waited patiently. But according to the official report, there are no cigarette butts found. So again, depending on how you collect the evidence, that's a big problem there. Of course, if we were in today's world, we could have taken DNA from the cigarette butts and conclusively found out who the killer was. We didn't have that then. And those cigarette butts were thrown away or discarded. So they believe that the killer came into the master bedroom where the father and mother were, and he first hit the father with several bores uh blows to the head to the axe because his face had been cut to such an extent that the eyes were missing. This is pretty grotesque stuff, but I'm going into details so you guys can see the similarities in other cases around this time, which need me to believe that one perpetrator was this axe murderer. The ceiling of the roof has gouge marks, so obviously this guy actually, well depending on how tall the bed was and how lo- low the roof was. It seems to me that he was standing on the bed on top of the, the victim and he was lifting the axe over his head and bringing it down. As he brought it up, he gouged the roof with the, the sharp part of the blade. So imagine that, okay? So, he then uses the other side of the blade to kill Sarah. And he then uses the blunt part to merit to kill Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul, and he gets on the same way they kill the parents. It looks like the killer actually returns to the master bedroom to inflict more blows on the moors. That also could be looked upon as that there's a lot of rage going through the sky. You know, we'll talk about this later. but. We have a killer who returns to a bedroom and he's already killed the people and he inflicts more blows on them. Maybe they reminded him of his family. And Wright told you, serial killers are born this way. There's something about his family can make him uh, alter the symptom of the tick, which is to murder families. He doesn't murder people on trains. He doesn't murder people in airplanes. He doesn't murder people in the streets. He murders people in houses the house so people can look in maybe that's also part of his pick Um, why we know that he came back into the bedroom because the shoes that were filled with blood after he beat them now were knocked over so he went back in the bedroom to do there's also the issue that who he killed last I believe he killed Enoch and Lena last. Why? Because in the bedroom, and this is sick, a four-pound slab of bacon was taken out of the ice and laid next to the axe. Now, there was also a lot of food that was untouched in a house, and bloody water was found where he cleaned his hands after he was done. Now, so you would have to say, well, why would this guy do this? In my opinion, this particular killer saw that the two girls, Ina and Nina were in the house, and his motive for killing was sex with three, uh teenage girls. This was his thing. Uh, the adults were killed. They were ambushed. That was just part of what he did. He got his lust up in anticipation for the girls by killing the per- parents first. You hear about a bloodlust. How serial killers sometimes kill and the spree begins to accelerate. This is how this guy got his juice is flowing. Killed the parents first. He ambushed them. And then he killed the rest of the family. The girl... I believe were last because there were defensive wounds on the girl's hands. So why was the bacon there? In those days, they didn't have readily, lotion and stuff like that. And this is kind of sick, but bear with me on this. I believe he used the bacon in some way as a sexual tool to get himself off. And look, I know that sounds way out, but... It's the only reason I can see why he would have brought that bacon into the know Bacon has grease. It's kind of a lubricant. I believe that's what he used. Let me call you back, man. I'm sure you got some comments about this. But this is where this guy is. And this guy is a sick individual. He is an insect of epic proportions. Hey, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely wasn't expecting that when you brought up the bacon i wasn't expecting that that turn but uh makes sense it is really grotesque
0: well we're giving to someone with serious you know serious issues and serious impulses um sexual predators are a very unique individual. And today we realize that and this is a reason that using sex offenders when they have lifetops in prison are not allowed out because you, know, you don't rape because it happens, it happens across your fancy once or twice in your life. Rapists are people who have a, an impulse. They have to do this. This is what they do. So with this particular killer, you know, you, you're looking at someone who, you know, his motive is sexually based, but he's very violent. Now, we understand that serial killers also sexualize violence. They sexualize control. By killing the parents first, he's controlling the narrative. He's controlling the scene. He's putting sheets up in front of them. That could be, could not allow people to look in. I, I doubt that. Back then there wasn't, you know, electricity like there is today. Some towns had it, some towns didn't. I think he did that because he felt like he was in his element. He wanted to completely control the scene, and that's why he put this up. And as we look at other murders in this time frame that we're talking about, the 10-year period, there are a number of houses the same thing is done. There are sheets placed over the faces of the people, and then he kills them. You know, you could argue in today's modern society that that would stop blood splatter. I don't believe so. I believe that's part of his ticket, part of his signature. Um, And there was nothing taken. There was money. There was jewelry. There was a number of things in the house that he could have taken, and he didn't. They were in plain sight. He only chose to kill, and in my opinion, sexually molested. I I believe Lena, who was a little bit older, pre-teen, and that's what his, really what he wanted. Now, you and I have talked about uh, BTK, Bond, Torture, Kill, and he killed the entire family as well. I'm, I'm drawing these comparisons so the audience can also picture, wow, this has happened before. This is something that Bill isn't just pulling out of his freaking head. BTK brought a family, killed them all in the house. At the very end, he took the young daughter, Preteen, took her to the cellar, hung her. So as she was dying, he masturbated, and we know this because we found DNA on her shoes. So this happened before. This isn't far fetched. Could BTK have studied this case? Sure, he could have. I doubt he did. So, this isn't that far fetched, Matt. This has happened before. And we also just talked about a couple other cases where we're going to draw similarities to this case, but they happened 90 to 100 years later. So, it isn't that far fetched.
1: Yeah. So, speaking of DNA, you know, this happened in 1912. And there are people not very many but there are people who were alive when this happened but when i hear 1912 i'm like you may as well be talking about the year 1492 i mean you know they didn't even discover they didn't prove that dna existed until 1953 and so you know that means in the 40s and and, in 1952 the most respected people on the topic were just giving lectures about how DNA wasn't a thing and how, oh, well, you're bald and your dad's bald. That's purely coincidence. It's I mean, you know, they were a little bit stubborn, I think. But anyway, my point is, that I'm trying to get to, is this was a long time ago. in I mean, not, but a long time ago from my perspective. So, what was the state of? Uh, and I'm sure it varied from from county to county and town to town. But what was the state of the crime investigation? Like, what? Like, well, pretty much zero. I mean, all
0: the crime investigation there was not. These guys trample over the crime scene. They had people walking in. They contaminated the entire thing. Many people picked up the axe and looked at it. Look every mistake that we know today should not be made was made in these crime scenes. there was speculation there was uh conjuncture there's people that you know bringing in mediums to look at this stuff they were you know saying it was the devil it was this person but crime investigation at this time was not even in its infancy it was this is like <laughs> if you're looking at this crime investigation as when a child is born, this is preconception. This is before anything. And most of the stuff we know about this was not shared. The county sheriff didn't know what he was doing. There was no FBI. There was none of the evidence collecting tools that we have today. waving in the forties or thirties, this is 1912 in Iowa for God's sakes. There is none. I believe that this crime scene was so contaminated that there's no way people could have gotten any kind of real evidence from it. The only thing we have here are what really happened, the obvious, and through the obvious is where I'm coming to my conclusions. Um, I'm sure other experts can also draw up to the same conclusions that I've come to on this case, that this is not a single incident. It was not a person that knew the family that came over the house. This is a guy who saw the family, and he obviously is an organized killer. This is prior to organized and disorganized serial killers terms even came up, but this guy's organized. He usually picked homes with barns. He usually picked homes with a family where there was a preteen daughter daughter. Um, he, for the most part, always used an axe that he took from the barn. This guy, I am tracking this guy through his actions. Forget DNA because it doesn't exist this time. We are basically putting on detective hats and we're going after this guy because of what he did rather than all the little things. And I have come to the conclusion. That one guy was involved, and one guy alone. Now I'm going to say this: during the time of these murders, Matt, several people were arrested. Several people were tried. One guy in particular, named Henry Lee Moore, he's not related to the Moore family, which they died the family who died in the, the murders, was tried twice. And the first time was a hung jury. The second time he was acquitted. So a great many other investigators, investigations were also, you know, launched and everybody was exonerated. They were looking in the wrong place. That was the first thing. And second of all, let me just say that, and I'll give you guys a teaser because we're not going to go too much into detail. This is going to go over a couple of episodes because we're going to go into real details about this guy. Several people were tried and convicted for other murders that he did. And no one even had this guy on the radar. So much so that seven people were actually. number of them were executed one was actually exonerated and there was actually lynchings of african-americans who at the time lived close to the, these murder scenes and because they were african Americans, people of black origins they were taken out and they were hung no jury it was a lynch mob so this guy this serial killer we can attribute all those Murders to him as well because his actions Directly cause The lynching and execution Of other individuals
1: Yeah Yeah One of my favorite facts about You know people who are So gung-ho about America And making it great again During this time There were actually bills Presented to Congress that were Just trying to make it illegal to lynch african-americans and congress voted them down so yeah i don't know if america was that great at that point um anyway a little bit of a tangent there we're gonna pick up more of this guy's modus operandi and some of the the ensuing crimes that take place after this on the next episode so until then, I have been Matt Ralston.
0: And I'm William Maguera. Uh Be safe. Your word, your surroundings, your life could depend on it. And before we go, Matt, I did want to uh, let the audience know that um, I have put up a a new YouTube page. And it's a channel. It has going to have everything on. There's a few episodes up right now. We'll have... Some of our episodes there, as well as a lot of new things about me. So check it out. It's called Through the Lens of a Monster, William A. Noguera. And check it out. And uh, obviously, sign up for my newsletter and get some details that you're not likely to get anywhere else. So again, thank you. And we'll see you next time for the second, third, or maybe fourth part of this serial killer that Matt and I are hunting down. And I think you're going to find very interesting. We'll see you
1: next time. So what's the actual... I think it might be helpful if you tell people, what's the name of the actual channel?
0: Oh, it's Through the Lens of a Monster. Um, I don't know, I don't have internet access, but the banner is called Through the Lens of a Monster, which is the name of the book that's coming out in 2024. Um, And it's under William A. Nogueira, which is my name. So I I imagine you can get it by just looking up Through the Lens of a Monster.
1: Yeah, so it's Through the Lens of a Monster. Uh, if you type that into YouTube, that will bring up Bill's page. Um, and it is William A. Guerra. but for some reason, if you put Bill's name into the search bar on YouTube, it brings up uh, Kim Main stuff, which is, which is good. But um, anyway, just type in Through the Lens of a Monster on YouTube and you'll find it. Okay. We will see you next time. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston.
0: And I'm willing to go. Be safe, be aware of your surroundings, your life could depend on.